0: Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Mao's Unpractice and Contradiction, and finishing up the chapter on how to deal with contradictions among the people. Let's get started. Section 9. On the question of disturbances created by small numbers of people. In 1956, small numbers of workers or students in certain places went on strike. The immediate cause of these disturbances was the failure to satisfy some of their demands for material benefits, of which some should and could have been met, while others were out of place or excessive and therefore could not be met for the time being. But a more important cause was bureaucracy on the part of the leadership. In some cases, the responsibility for such bureaucratic mistakes fell on the higher authorities and those at the lower levels were not to blame. Another cause of these disturbances was lack of ideological and political education among the workers and students. The same year, in some agricultural cooperatives, there were also disturbances created by a few of their members, and here too the main causes were bureaucracy on the part of the leadership and lack of educational work among the masses. It should be admitted that among the masses, some are prone to pay attention to immediate, partial, and personal interests, and do not understand, or do not sufficiently understand, long-range, national, and collective interests. Because of lack of political and social experience, quite a number of young people cannot readily see the contrast between old China and the new, and it is not easy for them thoroughly to comprehend the hardships our people went through in the struggle to free themselves from the oppression of the imperialists and Kuomintang reactionaries, or the long years of hard work needed before a fine socialist society can be established. That is why we must constantly carry on lively and effective political education among the masses, and should always tell them the truth about the difficulties that crop up, and discuss with them how to surmount these difficulties. We do not approve of disturbances, because contradictions among the people can be resolved through the method of unity-criticism-unity, while disturbances are bound to cause some losses, and are not conducive to the advance of socialism. We believe that the masses of the people support socialism, conscientiously observe discipline and are reasonable and will certainly not take part in disturbances without cause, but this does not mean that the possibility of disturbances by the masses no longer exists in our country. On this question, we should pay attention to the following. 1. In order to root out the causes of disturbances, we must resolutely overcome bureaucracy, greatly improve ideological and political education, and deal with all contradictions properly. If this is done, generally speaking, there will be no disturbances. 2. When disturbances do occur as a result of poor work on our part, then we should guide those involved onto the correct path. Use the disturbances as a special means for improving our work, and educating the cadres and the masses, and find solutions to those problems which were previously left unsolved. In handling any disturbance, we should take pains and not use over simple methods, or hastily declare the matter closed. The ringleaders in disturbances should not be summarily expelled, except for those who have committed criminal offences, or are active counter-revolutionaries and have to be punished by law. In a large country like ours, there is nothing to get alarmed about, if small numbers of people create disturbances. On the contrary, such disturbances will help us get rid of bureaucracy. There are also a small number of individuals in our society who, flouting the public interest, willfully break the law and commit crimes. They are apt to take advantage of our policies and distort them, and deliberately put forward unreasonable demands in order to incite the masses or deliberately spread rumours to create trouble and disrupt public order. We do not propose to let these individuals have their way. On the contrary, proper legal action must be taken against them. Punishing them is the demand of the masses, and it would run counter to the popular will if they were not punished. 10. Can bad things be turned into good things? In our society, as I have said, Disturbances by the masses are bad, and we do not approve of them, but when disturbances do occur, they enable us to learn lessons, to overcome bureaucracy, and to educate the cadres and the masses. In this sense, bad things can be turned into good things. Disturbances thus have a dual character. Every disturbance can be regarded in this way. Everybody knows that the Hungarian incident was not a good thing. But it too had a dual character. Because our Hungarian comrades took proper action in the course of the incident, what was a bad thing has eventually turned into a good one. Hungary is now more consolidated than ever, and all other countries in the socialist camp have also learned a lesson. Similarly, the worldwide campaign against communism and the people which took place in the latter half of 1956 was of course a bad thing, but it served to educate and temper the communist parties and the working class in all countries, and thus it has turned into a good thing. In the storm and stress of this period, a number of people in many countries withdrew from the communist party. Withdrawal from the party reduces its membership and is, of course, a bad thing, but there is a good side to it too vacillating elements who are unwilling to carry on have withdrawn, and the vast majority who are staunch party members can be the better united for struggle. Why isn't this a good thing? To sum up, we must learn to look at problems from all sides, seeing the reverse as well as the upverse side of things. In given conditions, a bad thing can lead to good results, and a good thing to bad results. More than 2000 years ago, Lao Tzu said, quote, good fortune lieth within bad, bad fortune lurketh within good, end quote. Footnote 1. When the Japanese shot their way into China, they called this a victory. Huge parts of China's territory were seized and the Chinese called this a defeat, but victory was conceived in China's defeat, while defeat was conceived in Japan's victory. Hasn't history proved this true? People all over the world are now discussing whether or not a third world war will break out. On this question too, we must be mentally prepared and do some analysis. We firmly stand for peace against war, but if the imperialists insist on unleashing another war, we should not be afraid of it. Our attitude on this question is the same as our attitude towards any disturbance. First, we are against it. Second, we are not afraid of it. The first world war was followed by the birth of the soviet union, with a population of 200 million. The second world war was followed by the emergence of the socialist camp, with a combined population of 900 million. If the imperialists insist on launching a third world war, it is certain that several hundred million more will turn to socialism, and then there will not be much room left on earth for the imperialists, It is also likely that the whole structure of imperialism will completely collapse. In given conditions, each of the two opposing aspects of a contradiction invariably transforms itself into its opposite as a result of the struggle between them. Here it is the conditions which are essential. Without the given conditions, neither of the two contradictory aspects can transform itself into its opposite of all the classes in the world. The proletariat is the one which is most eager to change its position, and next comes the semi-proletariat. But the former possesses nothing at all, while the latter is hardly any better off. The United States now controls a majority in the United Nations and dominates many parts of the world. This state of affairs is temporary and will be changed one of these days. China's position as a poor country denied its rights in international affairs will also be changed. The poor country will change into a rich one. The country denied its rights into one enjoying them, a transformation of things into their opposites. Here, the decisive conditions are the socialist system and the concerted efforts of a united people. Section 11. Unpracticing Economy Here, I wish to speak briefly about practising economy. We want to carry on large-scale construction, but our country is still very poor. Herein lies a contradiction. One way of resolving it is to make a sustained effort to practise strict economy in every field. During the movement against the Three Evils in 1952, we fought against corruption, waste and bureaucracy, with the emphasis on combating corruption. In 1955 we advocated the practice of economy with great success, our emphasis then being on combating the unduly high standards for non-productive projects in capital construction and economizing on raw materials in industrial production. But at that time, economy was not yet applied in earnest as a guiding principle in all branches of the national economy, or in government offices, army units, schools, and people's organizations in general. This year we are calling for economy and the elimination of waste in every sphere throughout the country. We still lack experience in the work of construction. During the last few years, great successes have been achieved, but there has also been waste. We must build up a number of large-scale modern enterprises, step by step, to form the mainstay of our industry without which we shall not be able to turn China into a powerful, modern, industrial country within the coming decades. But the majority of our enterprises should not be built on such a scale. We should set up more small and medium-sized enterprises and make full use of the industrial base inherited from the old society, so as to affect the greatest economy and do more with less money good results have begun to appear in the few months since the principle of practicing strict economy and combating waste was put forward, in more emphatic terms than before, by the second plenary session of the 8th Central Committee of the Communist Party of China in November 1956. The present campaign for economy must be conducted in a thorough and sustained way. Like the criticism of any other fault or mistake, The fight against waste may be compared to washing one's face. Don't people wash their faces every day? The Chinese Communist Party, the Democratic parties, the Democrats with no party affiliation, the intellectuals, industrialists, and businessmen, workers, peasants, and handicraftsmen. In short, all our 600 million people must strive for increased production and economy and against extravagance and waste. This is of prime importance, not only economically, but politically as well. A dangerous tendency has shown itself of late among many of our personnel, an unwillingness to share weal and woe with the masses, a concern for personal fame and gain. This is very bad. One way of overcoming it is to streamline our organizations in the course of our campaign to increase production and practice economy, and to transfer cadres to lower levels so that a considerable number will return to productive work. We must see to it that all our cadres and all our people constantly bear in mind that ours is a large socialist country, but an economically backward and poor one and that this is a very big contradiction. To make China prosperous and strong needs several decades of hard struggle, which means, among other things, pursuing the policy of building up our country through diligence and thrift, that is, practicing strict economy and fighting waste. Section 12. China's Path to Industrialization In discussing our path to industrialization, we are here concerned principally with the relationship between the growth of heavy industry, light industry and agriculture. It must be affirmed that heavy industry is the core of China's economic construction. At the same time, full attention must be paid to the development of agriculture and light industry. As China is a large agricultural country, with over 80% of its population in the rural areas, Agriculture must develop along with industry, for only thus can industry secure raw materials and a market, and only thus is it possible to accumulate more funds for building a powerful heavy industry. Everyone knows that light industry is closely tied up with agriculture. Without agriculture, there can be no light industry, but it is not yet so clearly understood that agriculture provides heavy industry with an important market. This fact, however, will be more readily appreciated as gradual progress in the technical transformation and modernization of agriculture calls for more and more machinery, fertilizer, water conservancy and electrical power projects and transport facilities for the farms, as well as fuel and building materials for the rural consumers. During the period of the second and third five-year plans. The entire national economy will benefit if we can achieve an even greater growth in our agriculture and thus induce a correspondingly greater development of light industry. As agriculture and light industry develop, heavy industry, assured of its market and funds, will grow faster. Hence, what may seem to be a slower pace of industrialization will actually not be so slow, and indeed may even be faster. In three five-year plans, or perhaps a little longer, China's annual steel output can be raised to 20 million tons or more, as compared with the peak pre-liberation output of something over 900,000 tons in 1943. This will gladden the people in both town and country. I do not propose to dwell on economic questions today. With barely seven years of economic construction behind us, we still lack experience and need to accumulate it. Neither had we any experience in revolution when we first started, and it was only after we had taken a number of tumbles and acquired experience that we won nationwide victory. What we must now demand of ourselves is that we gain experience in economic construction in a shorter period of time Then it took us to gain experience in revolution, and not to pay as high a price for it. Some price we shall have to pay, but we hope it will not be as high as that paid during the period of revolution. We must realize that there is a contradiction here the contradiction between the objective laws of economic development of a socialist society and our subjective cognition of them, which needs to be resolved in the course of practice. This contradiction also manifests itself as a contradiction between different people, that is, a contradiction between those in whom the reflection of these objective laws is relatively accurate, and those in whom the reflection is relatively inaccurate. This, too, is a contradiction among the people. Every contradiction is an objective reality, and it is our task to reflect it and resolve it in as nearly correct a fashion as we can. In order to turn China into an industrial country, we must learn conscientiously from the advanced experience of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union has been building socialism for 40 years, and its experience is very valuable to us. Let us ask, who designed and equipped so many important factories for us? Was it the United States? Or Britain? No. Neither the one nor the other. Only the Soviet Union was willing to do so, because it is a socialist country, and our ally. In addition to the Soviet Union, the fraternal countries in Eastern Europe have also given us some assistance. It is perfectly true that we should learn from the good experience of all countries, socialist or capitalist. About this there is no argument. But the main thing is still to learn from the Soviet Union. Now there are two different attitudes towards learning from others. One is the dogmatic attitude of transplanting everything, whether or not it is suited to our conditions. This is no good. The other attitude is to use our heads and learn those things which suit our conditions, that is, to absorb whatever experience is useful to us. That is the attitude we should adopt to strengthen our solidarity with the Soviet Union, to strengthen our solidarity with all the socialist countries. This is our fundamental policy, and this is where our basic interests lie. Then there are the Asian and African countries, and all the peace-loving countries and peoples. We must strengthen and develop our solidarity with them. United with these two forces, we shall not stand alone. As for the imperialist countries, we should unite with their people and strive to coexist peacefully with those countries, do business with them, and prevent a possible war. But under no circumstances should we harbor any unrealistic notions about them. Chapter 11 Where do Correct Ideas Come From? Where do correct ideas come from? Do they drop from the skies? No. Are they innate in the mind? No. They come from social practice, and from it alone. They come from three kinds of social practice. The struggle for production, the class struggle, and scientific experiment. It is man's social being that determines his thinking. Once the correct ideas characteristic of the advanced class are grasped by the masses, these ideas turn into a material force, which changes society and changes the world. In their social practice, men engage in various kinds of struggle and gain rich experience, both from their successes and from their failures. Countless phenomena of the objective external world are reflected in a man's brain through his five sense organs, his organs of sight, hearing, smell, taste, and touch. At first, knowledge is perceptual. The leap to conceptual knowledge, i.e. to ideas, occurs when sufficient perceptual knowledge is accumulated. This is one process in cognition. It is the first stage in the whole process of cognition, the stage leading from objective matter to subjective consciousness, from existence to ideas. Whether or not one's consciousness or ideas, including theories, policies, plans, or measures, do correctly reflect the laws of the objective external world is not yet proved at this stage, in which it is not yet possible to ascertain whether they are correct or not. Then comes the second stage in the process of cognition, the stage leading from consciousness back to matter, from ideas back to existence, in which the knowledge gained in the first stage is applied in social practice ascertain whether the theories, policies, plans or measures meet with the anticipated success. Generally speaking, those that succeed are correct and those that fail are incorrect. And this is especially true of man's struggle with nature. In social struggle, the forces representing the advanced class sometimes suffer defeat, not because their ideas are incorrect but because, in the balance of forces engaged in struggle, they are not as powerful for the time being as the forces of reaction. They are therefore temporarily defeated, but they are bound to triumph sooner or later. Man's knowledge makes another leap through the test of practice. This leap is more important than the previous one, for it is this leap alone that can prove the correctness or incorrectness of the first leap in cognition, i.e., of the ideas, theories, policies, plans, or measures formulated in the course of reflecting the objective external world. There is no other way of testing truth. Furthermore, the one and only purpose of the proletariat in knowing the world is to change it. Often, correct knowledge can be arrived at only after many repetitions of the process, leading from matter to consciousness and then back to matter, that is, leading from practice to knowledge and then back to practice. Such is the Marxist theory of knowledge, the dialectical materialist theory of knowledge. Among our comrades, there are many who do not yet understand this theory of knowledge. When asked the sources of their ideas, opinions, policies, methods, plans, and conclusions, eloquent speeches, and long articles, they consider the question strange and cannot hear it. Nor do they comprehend that matter can be transformed into consciousness and consciousness into matter, although such leaps are phenomena of everyday life. It is therefore necessary to educate our comrades in the dialectical materialist theory of knowledge, so that they can orient their thinking correctly, become good at investigation and study and at summing up experience, overcoming difficulties, make fewer mistakes, do their work better, and struggle hard so as to build China into a great and powerful socialist country, and help the broad masses of the oppressed and exploited throughout the world in fulfilment of our great internationalist duty. And that's our reading for this week. If you have any questions, comments, corrections or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to AbnormalMapping.com to find this and lots of other podcasts about books, video games, movies, anime. And our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find that and more of his work on SoundImage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading.